This is where I came in. This is perfect. Testing. 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 One, two, three. Here I am. <laughs> oh, you mad. Oh, oh. You mad. You mad, impulsive fool. Darn. <laughs> so beautiful, haunting. Alluvial fans. Over and over and over. Over and over again. It's like nothing in the world. San Francisco. Aspects of Zendiacal decadence. Slander. I do anything to get it back. Would you come with us, sir? Perform a world. Don't let dogs yawn. Perform a world. Stories. Crayola. Totally. Oh. Totally. Oh my goodness. Totally thrilled. Let's just do it. You have me. Hi everyone, this is Andy Moore. Welcome to Andy's Treasure Trove once again. This week's episode is going to be devoted to the filmmaker Gary Weinberg, who will tell us about some of his encounters with Burt Lancaster, Laurence Olivier, Francis Ford Coppola, and Steven Spielberg, and some of the lessons that he learned while working with them. I've known Gary a long time, and he and his partner, also his wife, Catherine Ryan, are a dynamic duo of documentary filmmaking. He's also going to tell us about a film that he and Kathy just finished, which is airing on PBS on October 16th, called Soldiers of Conscience. He'll be discussing that near the end of this about a half-hour-long interview. Stay with it. It's really worthwhile. I've recorded this interview in Berkeley, California, and a couple times during the interview you'll hear what sounds like a train. And for those of you who are residents here in the Bay Area, you know that it's a BART train, BART standing for Bay Area Rapid Transit. But those of you who don't live in the Bay Area, now you know what a BART train sounds like. Or you will soon. Have a listen, and I'll talk to you at the end. When people think about treasure troves, you know, a lot of what comes up is fantasy. What is the thing that you would want above all else? And in today's modern mediated culture, what is a very common fantasy? I want to be a director. I want to direct films. I want to be famous. I want to go to film festivals. I want to go to the Academy Awards. I want to win Emmys. I want to have all this wonderful stuff happen. And here's the amazing thing. Every one of those things that I've just listed has happened to me. But it hasn't been a fantasy. It's been reality. And I thought, ah, what a marvelous thing to have in Andy's treasure trove. The fantasy of being a famous director because I make documentaries, I have to say, I'm one fingernail's width of famous. But having said that, the fantasy of being a semi-famous director that so many people would have, well, wouldn't it be interesting to see what it's like for someone who really is one? Now, this isn't my own life experience, but I read in Vanity Fair just recently a very beautiful sentence. The artist, uh, the writer, was writing about Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, and he wrote, What from a distance seems very glamorous up close looks like a lot of hard work. Now, I know we're in treasure trove land, so we don't want to dwell on hard work. But the fact is, as the fantasy of being a director has had so many shapes and forms over my life, I thought we could tell stories along the way. But of course, the overarching theme is also very hard work. And in part, it's worked for me because I've been able to tell stories that are not my own, but are other people's that are really important, and therefore audiences have connected. That's the activist part of what you were talking about. My directing work has been in documentaries. So it's not about how brilliant I am, but how sensitive I can be in telling other people's stories. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's a lesson that took me many years to learn. And right at the beginning, when it was only a fantasy that I had, and I did not yet know that I would actually become a director, that's the place I think we should start. Sounds good. Ready, set, go. 
Well, for the listeners to Andy's treasure trove, they will not know, but I'm anxious to fill them in, that Andy and I have known each other since college. And in fact, when I was in film school, fantasizing that I would someday become a director, Andy and I were in film school together. You graduated before I did, and I came up to American Zoetrope, the company of Francis Ford Coppola, where Andy worked on Apocalypse Now. And I thought it was the most glamorous experience of my life to date, to be in the room where Apocalypse Now was being mixed, where Andy was working, and I thought, oh my God, could anything be more glamorous and wonderful? Did I burst your bubble, or do you still have lingering... No, not at all, not at all. I mean, that's that's the actual memory, Andy. Um, yes, I now know that, you know, the world is big. <laughs> but actually, what's interesting about that is, is the worm's eye view of the great men or women. When one is low in the hierarchy of a big organization, it's a, both a uniquely wonderful point of view, but then also a limited one. Just right there on the, the very bottom. And so, sort of my first directorial story is when I came up to San Francisco myself and worked for Francis Ford Coppola at that same facility. I won't say that the only reason I did that was to follow in my friend Andy's footsteps, but that was certainly part of it. So I think I was not the very lowest person on the hierarchy. I was the second to the lowest. There was one person lower than me. So I was an assistant editor and really had no responsibility whatsoever, while Francis Ford Coppola was in the middle of making one from the heart. For those who remember that period in his life, he was a fantastically successful, super-rich filmmaker who was busy spending every single penny he had on an artistic vision and was going down in flames, heading towards bankruptcy. A very dramatic moment. He had a studio in L.A., which eventually he'd have to sell off at total low rate because he couldn't get his money back out of it, and a facility in San Francisco, which he held on to. At the very moment that he had to sell everything he owned in L.A. and move up to San Francisco, he was finishing the film One from the Heart, and I was a assistant editor on One from the Heart, and he moved back up. The first thing he did was to make everyone move their offices around because he wanted us to be a close-knit community. He didn't want to spread out on different floors of the building or even different buildings. And through an entire fluke, my assistant editing room space was eight and a half feet from the number one editing room that he and his editor would spend the next six months in editing one from the heart. So as the worm at the bottom of the hierarchy, I was able to watch and learn and listen from Francis Ford Coppola for six whole months. And it was a dream come true experience, including that it cured me at that point of ever wanting to be a director. Because I found by watching that it was really, really hard. And I'd hear him being creative and I'd hear him being excited and then I'd see him be depressed, and I'd see him face his defeats. And the emotional roller coaster from up to down was so great that I thought, I don't know that I have that much ability to live my life that passionately. And now, here we are, I hate to say mumbly mum years later, I find that it is actually true that the emotional roller coaster of being a director and making one's own films is debilitatingly exciting and depressing. And my instincts as the worm at the bottom of the hierarchy watching Francis were right. In some ways, I wish that I didn't have to be in such an emotionally difficult position. But that's the price of living one's dream. But at the time, I looked at Francis and I thought, I don't ever want to be a director. I'm happy enough to serve other people's films and other people's jobs, 
slip into his editing room in the night after he and his marvelous editor Anne Gorso had gone home, tidy up some of the loose ends or the films left behind. There was the day that he came out of the office and he was just elated. He said, everybody, I've just gotten a loan so big that they forgot to ask for collateral. And I thought, wow, this is living high on the hog. <laughs> but was scary for me. Or, you know, another thing, and this is just comes with the territory of being with a, you know, world-famous filmmaker. One day he invites every single person in the office to go into the kitchen. He has a surprise for us. Things were going so badly, we thought that we were all going to be laid off. So we're all, like, down in the mouth and depressed. He says, it's my pleasure to introduce to you one of the greatest living filmmakers in the world, Akira Kurosawa, who was in San Francisco, stopped by to visit Francis. He introduces us as a crew to Kurosawa, Opens the door, Kurosawa comes out, who shakes hands with every single one of us in the room. The point of this story, actually, is not just that it was fun, but, okay, I made a big point about how I was at the bottom of the hierarchy. There was one person lower than me in the hierarchy, Jenny. She was the apprentice. It just so happens that she was a model in Japan before becoming an apprentice. So she spoke fluent Japanese. So a Kurosawa is there meeting everyone who works for Francis, shaking hands, nodding sagely, and at the very lowest person in the whole hierarchy, she begins talking to him in Japanese, and the rest of us sit back, flabbergasted, as they have a 15-minute conversation in Japanese that none of the rest of us could understand. That was the beginning of Jenny's very successful career. Jenny Wayman Cockle. One of the other things that comes to mind from this period is, is that, here's what I didn't know. Filmmaking is you think it's glamorous, or you think it's what's in magazines, but what Francis did was he threw the very best parties, and you felt, I want to be part of this group of people having a good time. And he would cook pasta, and you'd be taking food from his hand and thinking, this isn't just some stranger. This is a guy who knows how to laugh so hard he has to hold both sides of his belly and feed his crew from his own hand in the kitchen. This is fun. And what came from that was truly one of the best parties that I've ever been to in my entire life up to that time. In the building that he owned at the corner of Kearney and Columbus, the beautiful triangular Sentinel building, there was a restaurant on the first floor with the traditional diner, small rotating stools along the counter. And just like I had always fantasized, when Francis threw a party there, not only did we dance and eat and sing, but we got up on the stools and the counter and twisted and danced to the amazement of people walking by outside the glass windows. Because it must have seemed like a cliche, the wild film crew dancing and enjoying themselves. But it was true. It was real. And it was just a pleasure to be a part of. It was at that very same counter that I first laid eyes on Jack and he, me. Here, here. There, there. Well, so much for your brush with Francis Ford Coppola. What about you and Burt Lancaster? Uh, so, it's one thing to fantasize about being a director. It's another to give it up in the face of the reality of Francis Ford Coppola. Then came the moment where, almost against my will, I became a director. And it was thanks to Burt Lancaster. I was editing a documentary, and I was working for two gentlemen who I liked very much. One was the producer and one was the director, and they never agreed on a thing. So when one is an editor, you're not making your own film you're making the film that the others want, your director or your producer. But if they don't agree, you're in a totally untenable position. So I spent six months 
working as hard as I could to please two mules pooling in an opposite direction. Well, I think that we came up with a good film regardless, and we hired Burt Lancaster to be the narrator. Big day of the session comes. We're in the studio. The plan is the producer and the director will sit with Bert in the recording room with the microphone, and I will be with the engineer-in-chief in the booth. Bert comes in. I'm so thrilled to be around him as a celebrity, I can barely say two words. He sits down in the room with the producer and the director, and they start doing to him what they had been doing to me for six months, having totally contrary instructions. And he stood it for a good 35 seconds. And then, like the star that he is, he went supernova and said, You guys don't know what you're doing! You're giving me contradictory directions and I'm not going to know my ass from the hole in the ground and you can't do it! And, you know, we're documentarians, okay? We're making a documentary film that he's narrating and basically they melt down in the heat of the star and for the next... Four hours of the recording session, neither of them say a thing. And as he starts going through the script, and I'm sitting in the booth with the recording engineer, looking at the stopwatch, I realize it has come to me to speak up. Uh, Mr. Lancaster, that was very good, but you read it in 36 seconds, and the way the film is edited now, we need it in 22. Would you mind doing it again faster? And he was totally gracious. Sure, no problem. And so it went for the next four hours. In fact, in time, I became ever more relaxed and started to actually give him directions about how he should read, including at one particular point saying, okay, you want to pause here in the middle of the sentence because then the film does this, and you want to imply with your voice that you'll return to the narration, but you come to a complete stop. Can you do that for me, sir? Yes, of course. And he did it. And he said, you know what? What's your name, young man? Gary Weinberg, you'll be a very good director someday. And then he read the line. And the next thing I remember him saying, was that what you wanted? And of course, I was just, you'll be a good director someday. You'll be, I'm just. That's what you wanted. That's right. I'm just listening to that over and over in my mind. I'm like, I have no idea. I'm like, yes, yes, thank you, Bert. It's gold, Gary. <laughs> I thought, huh, maybe I could be a good director someday. I mean. If Burt Lancaster says this. Now, did you make enemies of the rest of the crew because you were shining and they were... So true, Andy. This is the sad truth. This actually happened down in Los Angeles. The sad truth of Hollywood is, is that I feel that I was the hero of the session because I did save his performance and no one else was rising to the occasion, and I did. And I don't think that I was operating outside of my area of authority, although I was working with him on his performance like an editor would not often get a chance to. He left the room, and the producer turned to me and said, You're never working for me again. But at the same time, that very same producer who had a job that came up in three months' time hired me to be the director. So, he spoke out of jealousy at the moment, but he also was in the room when Burt Lancaster said, You'll be a good director one day, and he was the first guy who hired me as a director, and off we went. When he said, I'll never work with you again, did you figure that was it, that that's engraved in stone? Yeah, I did. I thought that that was totally serious. I thought, boy, I don't know what else I could do, but I've blown it. And, you know, this is the dark side of Hollywood. The glamour is the up, and the depression, the crash is the down. You know, the success is the glory, and the jealousy is the stab in the back. If one is lucky enough to achieve success, 
there will be people who will hate you for it. And I'm sad to say I've lost friends over that. But at the same time, just some, and maybe those people weren't such good friends to begin with. Well, when you were talking about directing Burt Lancaster and asking him to read it faster, even though you were the guy in the junior guy in the booth, that reminds me of a story you once told me about Sir Laurence Olivier. Oh, uh, yes. And a similar situation. Well, it was, in fact, the very next film that the same producer hired me for, and Laurence Olivier was hired to be the narrator of that. We had to fly to London to do it, and I thought, oh my God, I'm a young Yank director on my first major documentary, and I have Laurence Olivier to direct what could be better. And what was the documentary? These were documentaries about Malcolm Forbes, the American multimillionaire and publisher of Forbes magazine. And ultimately, they were shown on PBS. I think they were actually shown on Fox before it became the disgusting Fox it is today. But um, they were aired, but their primary reason for being actually were to be shown on Malcolm Forbes's private yacht, steaming up the Hudson, to be taking the leaders of the Fortune 500 companies of the United States and the world to the Army-Navy game. So as a publisher of Forbes Business Magazine, his Rolodex is filled with the just most powerful people in the world. And he would show these movies. And these movies were documentaries about his vacation travels and the marvelous adventures and the cultural travelogues of the places that he would go to. His vacation hobby was to have a custom-made hot air balloon that was culturally appropriate to the place that he would be taking a vacation. So, for example, Burt Lancaster narrated the documentary that it was about Malcolm Forbes's trip to Egypt, where he flew a hot air balloon that was in the shape of the Great Sphinx of Giza and flew it above the Great Sphinx of Giza. And then he and his friends would ride Harley-Davidson motorcycles down some amazingly remote and interesting and beautiful roads to other cities and fly the hot air balloon again, and etc., etc. So you'd really see a lot of a country that you wouldn't see in a normal train trip or travelogue. And the balloon really did connect genuinely to people's hearts. That was really quite the surprise and the delight. But it was an interesting experience to be working for the ultra-rich, and it allowed you to do things like hire two full camera crews and fly around the world, or hire Burt Lancaster or Laurence Olivier and fly your young American director over to London to do the directing. So the second one was about a trip to Thailand that Malcolm had made with a custom hot air balloon in the shape of an elephant, and Laurence Olivier was slated to be the narrator. Much to my great disappointment, he was in very bad health. In fact, he couldn't get enough air in his lungs to deliver the lines at the speed that we had edited the film, assuming that the narration would go at that speed. So most of my direction to one of the world's greatest actors was, excuse me, sir, could you say that again faster? And I felt like, you know, the yapping little Yankee dog around the distinguished English herd of sheep. <laughs> and he was there with his nurse, who also sort of pushed him around. And I thought, oh, you elderly great star, Lawrence, you don't need to put up with this. But actually, I guess he did. But, you know, there's a, there is a silver lining to this cloud. There was the moment where he suddenly pulled up short and turned to me and he said, I'd like to read that again, if you don't mind. If I imitated him, it'd be pathetic. I'd like to read it again, if you don't mind. I'm like, oh, no, not at all. And then he described what he wanted to do. The sentence was a comparison. And he wanted to put into his tone of voice an awareness in the first part that the second part was coming and that the comparison between the two would allow for a conclusion in the end of the sentence. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, 
sure, Larry. No, <laughs> no I, for, to me it was, yes, Lord Olivier, please do, sir. And there was the magic. The sentence that he had chosen to really do his thing, when he reread it, it was exactly what he had intended to do, and so beautifully done that I got to have the experience that I wanted of loving the man and his gift and feeling truly blessed to be in the presence of it. And after that, we went back to the normal. Please read it again faster for the rest of the session. <laughs> what I'm really glad to say is, is that his health recovered afterwards and that he did a number of films that I think were quite physically demanding. Some of my biggest regrets is to be in the presence of someone who really is a legend amongst actors, that I came away with simply one autographed copy of the script. The producer I was with said, oh, it's so classy to get him to just sign the script rather than to pose for a tacky photo of you and him. And now I have such regrets. Please, please, if you're listening to this, pose for the tacky photos. They're great. Those are the keepsakes you want. In fact, if I ever meet someone who's really talented with Photoshop, I may request that they take a photo of me and him at that time and put us together so that I'll have the memory that I always wished I'd had from the time. And maybe if you're really lucky, you'll forget that it was Photoshop and <laughs> it'll become reality. Actually, the best memory I have of it is, is the day before the session, we were killing time because, of course, when one flies to London for a recording session, you leave enough time to get over jet lag a little. So what do you do when you're killing time? We went shopping and I bought this very expensive pair of shoes at Harrods, the great English department store. Black leather, European, tight little things. And so for many years, those were my Olivier shoes. <laughs> and when I brought them back, of course, not only did I explain to my girlfriend, who had later become my wife, that these were my Olivier shoes, but I explained it to everyone who I possibly could. And so it was the most wonderful of memories. It's like, oh, yes, I'll wear my Olivier shoes to the event. And then I could explain to everyone there. So do you like um, getting mileage out of these stories? Well, I have a dear friend who says, the reason to make films is so that you can have something interesting to say at a cocktail party. Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly a believer in that, but it is pretty darn fun to have had some of these things happen. It's a fringe benefit. It's a fringe benefit, and it sort of is interesting in a couple of ways. One way is, when you have these sort of interactions in real life with these people, it is simply real life. They do, of course, become wonderful stories that other people are interested in, but it also informs you as to the nature of all celebrity is sort of just real life for some people. There's not really this huge gulf between regular people and celebrities. There's media that makes us feel separated, but, you know, they're just other people living regular lives. And that's the great lesson. We're all just people. And so you can hang out and feel comfortable, or you can feel uptight and not have a good time. But in the end, we're all just people. If we're on the topic of celebrities, one of the best celebrities encounters was at the uh, Havana Film Festival, where my wife Kathy produced a film that won Best Foreign Film, a film called Maria's Story about a woman from El Salvador. We were at the Havana Film Festival sitting in this section of seats where one sits to receive translations through headphones in English. So it's a little area of English-speaking foreigners in Havana. And this totally beautiful blonde woman is sitting next to me. Oh, hello, I say. What is your name? Julie? Julian, are you in the industry? Yes, I'm an actress. Oh, we're chatting up a storm. And the producer next to me is hitting me with her elbow, hitting me with her. I'm like, excuse me, I'm talking to Julie. She's an actress. Yes, eventually the producer tells me. That's Julie Christie. Well, I had just thought she was this blonde, pretty actress with a British accent. 
and it's enjoyed her company. Probably better, really, that you didn't... Well, I think that that's exactly true, Andy, because what happened is the whole rest of the film festival, whenever she possibly had an opportunity, she sought out my company. And I think it's because I related to her as a real person. When we came down to breakfast in the hotel that we were both staying in, she waved me over to join her and the other starlets at the beautiful woman table. Oh, as a young man, I couldn't have been more happy, unless, of course, I had had the courage to actually engage any of them in conversation. <laughs> if only. And you weren't hated by the other people, because once again, you had gone beyond your station and ah, well, hanging out with the beautiful people. With love's light wings, I did overclimb these walls, to quote Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet. No, if other people hated me, I had no room to see it. I was so busy being thrilled. Actually, when Kathy, my future wife, came to Cuba to eventually win the award, and I told her this story about Julie Christie, she gave me this sort of eye like, yeah, I know you're a good storyteller, Gary, but I, you know, I can't quite believe this. <laughs> who could do, Who could not recognize Julie Christie? Right. So then later that day of her arrival, we're being tourists in the old city of Havana, and across a courtyard in downtown Havana, Gary, Gary, it's Julie Christie. She runs over. She says, I've just bought these cigars. Do you want to smoke one with me? <laughs> oh, yes, please. And this is my girlfriend, Kathy. Hi, Julie. Hi, Kathy. So not only was it confirmed that it was true, Kathy also got the experience of smoking cigars with Julie Christie, <laughs> our dear friend. You couldn't get rid of Julie Christie. Ah, so true. Who'd want to? But you know, Andy, as I began my you know career path into being a director, the things that I had observed from Francis, the highs and the lows, you know, then I had to live through them. And there were times where I would be faced with my own limits and my own fears and my own sense of, oh, this is the ruin of everything around me. And actually, there's one particular point that I'd like to bring to your listeners where I felt everything I'd worked on for four years was about to be totally destroyed. And I had to find a new level of being a director. And the mentor who taught me how to survive that moment was my dog. We can all learn lessons wherever we go. And let's just say my dog is one that is well worth learning lessons from. And perhaps in my heart is she's as much a celebrity as any of the others. I was working on a film called The Double Life of Ernesto Gomez Gomez. And the central drama is about Ernesto, the mother who gave birth to him, who was in prison in the United States. And we made the film in hope of freeing her from her unjust case, which did occur. And his adopted parents in Mexico who had raised him when his mother was not able. We'd worked on the film together for about three years. In part, because Ernesto said, let's make a film to free my mom. But after three years of work, we went to Mexico together to get the material from his Mexican family, without which there'd be no film whatsoever. Ernesto was 15 years old, a teenager, just forming a relationship with his biological mom, interested in the film, but a teenager nonetheless. The night we arrive, in Chihuahua, Mexico, at the home of his Mexican parents, he immediately ditched me to go hang out with his teenage friends. The Mexican parents knew that I was coming and had given permission. Nonetheless, they were deeply, deeply worried about who was this gringo filmmaker. And my Spanish, barely marginal enough to get by, sort of crumbled in the face of all these strangers who were not warm and welcoming, but suspicious and sometimes even hostile. And the first night when I went to sleep in my sleeping bag on the floor of his little brother's room, I silently just started to cry into the pillow. I thought, if I don't get this material from this part of his family, the whole film is ruined. And it's totally up to me, and yet I have no ability to make it happen. I can't communicate. I can't tell them who I am or what I want. And then I thought about my dog, 
who wins friends wherever she goes with her lovely intelligence, her bright eyes, and her simple observation of life that goes on around her. My dog speaks no English, just as I spoke no Spanish. And I thought, if all I do is project my feelings to this good family, in the same way as Luna, my dog, projects her feelings, that's the best I can do, and I'll earn at least a friend or two along the way. And that's exactly what happened. I attached myself to Ernesto's father, who was the most hostile of the family, and I thought, I'll just follow him around like his own pet poodle until he starts to realize that I'm quiet but pleasant company, willing to go and do what he wants to. And by the end of five days, I'd accomplished everything that I'd wanted. The family truly accepted me in my own inarticulate, idiotic, gringo way, and the interview was beautiful beyond belief, perhaps in part because they knew they couldn't rely on me to do a good job of interviewing them, but they had to represent themselves, and it was magnificent. And I thank my dog. And to this very day, when I'm doing an interview, or even just filming with someone, part of what I do as a documentary filmmaker is to put acceptance in my face mm -hmm. so that that person feels safe to express the truth of their lives. And I feel that that's both my gift and my task, is to help people express the truth of their lives. And I think that's why people like my films. Because when you watch it, you don't think, oh, look, Gary made that. You think, wow, that's what Ernesto's parents really felt. So I get to become the window through which you enter into the experience of those people that you wouldn't otherwise meet. Because, you know, when you make documentary films, the true joy is reflecting the diversity of human experience. And that is so unbelievably creative beyond what, you know, any person might write when they're sitting at their desk or, you know, any poet or screenwriter. Yeah, any one person can be creative, but they're nowhere near as varied as, you know, a hundred people living their lives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you make a film and you talk to a hundred people, the stories that come away are so powerful and transformative. It's a joy not to make it about me, but to truly make it about them. And although the audience doesn't know you put on a particular type of face to enable your subject to tell the story. They see the subject telling the story, and maybe a little bit of your face is, or your attitude is reflected in that face. Well, I think that's true. I mean, there's one film that we made, and I'm sort of proud to quote this. It was a film called Fathers and Sons. The reviewer for Variety said, it's as if these filmmakers gave these men some kind of truth serum hmm. that they could talk sensitively. Well, you know, the truth serum that we gave them was simply respect and a space to give voice to experiences that men don't often get to talk, you know, about their relationship to their father and their son. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the secret of documentary films is, is that if you turn on the camera and spend 40 minutes with someone, they will tell you their profound truth. We want to say what's true. And if you come to that with compassion or acceptance or respect, you'll walk away with a story that's well worth telling and that other people will want to see. I wonder if Steven Spielberg agrees with that. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that, Andy, because, you know, I used to joke, Spielberg, Weinberg, there's not enough room in this town for both of us, so I guess I better leave town. <laughs> but I did actually get to meet Steven Spielberg from this very same film, The Double Life of Ernesto Gomez Gomez. After I'd learned all my lessons from my dog and completed the film, 
The Double Life of Ernesto Gomez Gomez was nominated by the Directors Guild of America for Outstanding Achievement in Documentary Films. And as part of attending that wonderful award ceremony, Steven Spielberg held a party for the nominees and his closest 10,000 friends or whatever. <laughs> but so I was invited as a nominee. I can't remember how old I was at the time, but let's just say that I felt like a young man compared to the directors around me. And I was so impressed at this awards dinner. Wherever you'd walk, you'd, you'd, you'd see these like, you know, articulate guys, and truly most of them were guys, articulate guys telling some witty story, one right after another, surrounded by, you know, like beautiful women and mink stoles and stuff. You'd like, wow, these are really directors, you know, how'd they let me in the room? Well, I was a documentary guy, so they barely let me in the room. They actually put me in the, you know, the furthest seat away from the stage. And the only other people at my table besides Kathy, my girlfriend at the time, and me were a bunch of drunk, alcoholic directors of commercials. These are embittered guys. And they loved it. They had like fresh meat, this documentary guy sitting at their table. So part of the award ceremony shtick was behind the head table, there was an endless loop of slides, pictures of the nominees doing their craft. So, you know, every seven and a half minutes, up would come a picture of me and my drunk directorial commercial making buddies at the table would burst into applause. And I sort of felt like we were the white trash table at the director's guild. And I was the guy getting the applause. Now, of course, eventually, because they're drunk and alcoholic, they started booing the other nominees in my category. And I'm like, wait, you know, don't go there, you guys. <laughs> this is embarrassing. I have to work with these people. But the amazing thing is, at the end of the party, at Steven Spielberg's ultra ritzy cool place to have the party when i said to kathy we should say goodbye to our host although i was joking when we walked over to steven spielberg to say goodbye he met my eye he stood up and he walked over to me we talked a little bit about the film i shook hands i thanked him for inviting us to the party and we went not the world's most important interaction but as i thought about it how could he ever have met my eye and stood up and talked to me. He must have recognized me. It could only be because of my white trash friends. He must have looked up and said, who's the nutcase who has a little cheering section here that every eight and a half minutes a bunch of drunks cheer? This must be a guy who, you know, knows what he's doing. <laughs> so, you know, I consider Spielberg and I to be really close friends. And that led to your three-picture deal with him. <laughs> I did actually, shamelessly, in my... Weinberg's list. <laughs> but I came away from that party thinking, what a nice guy. And he probably did too. Well, I think so. Because when he asked about the film, one of the great joys of making the double life of Ernesto Gomez Gomez is Ernesto's mother, who was in prison, was pardoned by President Clinton within weeks of the broadcast of the film. And I know that those things were connected. So we told that to Spielberg, and he said in some you know, very gracious sentence, like, well, you guys must be the angel of mercy then. Mm -hmm. I think that that's pretty much what he said. So, yes, I think he was impressed at the time, and we were all quite impressed. Why else make a film like that, mm -hmm. except to change the world for the better? Well, we have something that's going to be on the air on PBS uh, in 2008, October 16th, 2008. Our most recent work, by our, I mean my wife, that I've referred to a few times in this conversation, Kathy Ryan, with whom I make these films. A film of ours called Soldiers of Conscience is going to be on PBS, and that is the story of 
soldiers in the U.S. Army today in the war in Iraq. It's not a political film. It's not even an Iraq film. It's a very personal, intimate film. If you're a soldier and your nation has trained you and asked you to kill, there comes the point when your finger is on the trigger and you have to decide, do I pull this trigger and kill another human being or do I not? So the film is about the burden of conscience. Profiles eight soldiers, four who have killed and have changed forever and carry that burden of conscience to this day. Four who chose not to, two of whom get court-martialed and go to jail because they do not want to kill anymore, and two get honorable discharges as conscientious objectors. The film is respectful of all of these young men and all of their points of view and portrays each of them as sincerely as possible. And I think that what it really is about is about what's in the heart of us as audience members. It's one thing to think about the grandness of war like presidents or ideologies or big business. It's another thing to think about war one bullet at a time. And that's the more human level. And that's the level that's easier to understand. So Soldiers of Conscience really makes the argument that all soldiers have a conscience and that in our hearts as human beings, it is not our nature to kill other human beings. It is actually our nature to shy away from killing. And I think the film does a very good job of showing how common that is and how real that is for both those who do pull the trigger and those who don't. So it's, it was a huge journey of exploration for me and I think for the soldiers themselves. And I think for audiences too. And the website is www.soldiers-themovie.com. No spaces. www.soldiers-themovie.com. And if you're wondering, there's a two-minute trailer there so you can get a little flavor of it. Try before you buy. Try before you buy. And for the listeners of Andy's Treasure Trove, you can have my personal money-back guarantee. So if you buy it and you don't like it, Call Andy. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. You know, this is the nice thing about being a small business owner. You can go right back to the website and say, hey, I want my money back. I saw it on Andy's Treasures Trove that you'll be making my money good. Like, okay, fine. I'll do it for you. (laughs) But aside from that, I'd just like to say that Andy's Treasure Trove listeners are very, very lucky. A lifetime of hanging out with Andy Moore has taught me if Andy Moore hands you a box... It's really worth opening it up and looking to see what's inside because it's going to be very interesting. I think you're in good hands here on Andy's Treasure Trove, fellow listeners. <laughs> well, thank you. What a nice thing to say. You see, when you interview your friends, they say nice things about you. Thank you, Gary. And I advise everyone to tune in tomorrow, October 16th, to watch Soldiers of Conscience on their local PBS station. And if you miss it, go online to soldiers-themovie.com. I'll provide a link from my website, andystreasuretrope.com. Thanks to you all for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Reserve, Andy Moore, Treasure Trove Productions.